0: So, hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Politics and Podcast with me Ben Hudson
1: and me Stuart Thompson.
0: So Stuart, how have you been? Have you been up to anything interesting lately?
1: Well I'm currently in, in Glasgow because one of our uh, children are doing a course up here so I've got to experience uh, a lot of public transport uh, across Glasgow as opposed to London where I usually am. So it, uh, it just reminded me how Actually, fortunate we are in London to have the public transport system that we do, and and not everywhere else is as fortunate as as we are. It, it reinforces that. So yeah, apart from some yeah, a bit of a bit of a bus and train spottering few days, that's been uh, most of my time anyway.
0: Yeah, well, welcome to our world, Stuart, up, up here in the north. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, I've I've experienced both of them. Like the transport in London, second to none compared to around here. So yeah, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. So it's been a busy couple of weeks in politics. Um, so we've had elections in three constituencies across the country. Uh, and Both the Conservatives and, and Labour have been drip-feeding news, which could indicate what could be included in the manifestos ahead of the next general election as well. So I suppose, shall we start on the big news on by-elections? Um, I can give a bit of a summary on, on this, Stuart. So so I think three took place. One was in uh, Boris Johnson's old seat of Uxbridge and South Rice Slip. One was in Selby and Ainsty, which has been Conservative for a long time, and one was in Somerton and Frome, which has also been Conservative for a while now. So three Conservative seats up for election. Uh, shall we start with the Uxbridge and South Reislip one?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, uh, Boris's old seat, uh, as you mentioned, Ben, um, just on the outskirts of London, uh, and that sort of connection to London, shall we say, seems to have been where most of the uh controversy has come and labor just didn't win so but even during you know the blair years post 97 this wasn't a labor seat so for them to get you know arguably within within sort of just shy of 500 votes it was was a pretty good was a pretty good result for them
0: yeah 100% and i, th- I think the seat's been took over by steve tuckwell is it i uh, sure i don't know if we know anything on steve i, I can't really find anything on him i think he was a councillor for slip if I'm right and saying yeah Ryslip. good good local
1: good local candidates
0: I understand it yeah yeah so I think it I think his his campaign was all around um maybe holding a referendum on the ultra low emission zone in London so I know they've been quite controversial since uh, Sadiq Khan's kind of rolled them out um and I think that's what might have just clinched this for for him in in Uxbridge and South rice slip um, it's I suppose it's caused a little bit of a rift within the Labour Party as well. I've seen Angela Rayner come out and criticise uh, some of Sadiq Khan's policy around this. Um, I suppose, we, you know, at the minute we've got kind of, you've seen all the, the fires and uh, the forest fires and stuff like that in, in Greece. And I've seen an interesting kind of like front page article the other day, Stuart, I think it was on the Daily Mail, where it was a picture of the fires and then uh, one of the headlines was around... Basically, the Conservatives ditching any green policies um, after after the result here. Suppose where where does it kind of leave green uh, green policies in both parties? And
1: yeah, so the the so the ULEZ is the ultra low emission zone. So it's uh, a, a sort of a charging scheme which is applied to various parts of London. So It was a more central zone, then it got expanded, uh, and I'm I live in the expanded sort of zone already in North London. And then it's going to be expanded again into places like, you know, Uxbridge and and, and the idea is that if you have a a, a more polluting car, either petrol or diesel, but yeah, not electric because they're not polluting. Something. Sort of um, then you pay a charge for going into the zone, or if you live in the zone, you pay um, for having that old car sort of sitting there. Um, so you have a choice: you can either pay the charge, or you can change your car. Now I know that's much easier said than done, and not everybody can afford to. You know, change their car but there are also scrappage schemes on offer as well so it's not like you know there is no support available there and I think if we've got sort of any sort of examples or previous experience of these things is that in advance of the charge coming in everybody goes this is the worst thing ever to happen ever to us it then happens and people go actually it's not too bad and then everybody gets used to it that happened with the original congestion zone in London that Ken Livingstone introduced. It happened with the, the you know, the original ULA, you know, the low emission zone. It's happened with the ULES now in North London. And I think, you know, if anything is to, to go by, then that will happen in, in North London. But uh, so I think there's two sets of implications. One, Ben, you're right, is, is, look, does this sort of set have ramifications for green policies across the parties? But I think the other part is about devolution, and the reality is that if you have more mayors and more powers for local authorities or cities or whatever it happens to be, you will get different policies in different places. Again, Glasgow today, there's a low emission, sorry, there's a, yes, a low emission zone here, not an ultra-low emission zone, a low emission zone here. I may have to drive in next week, so I had to check my car to make sure it applies, that I can drive here as, as well as where I am in North London, and I can. So, um, But people will find that. They will have different experiences of transport potentially public health or uh, education or training or skills depending on where you are in the country but that's that's the whole point you have policies with devolution that, that suit the needs of your local area and frankly i think that you know for for something like a, a you know clean air zone as well again another variety of of a charging zone birmingham uh, have got one uh, manchester were putting one in, I think are still planning to put one in, possibly, although I haven't checked that recently, uh, but they fell out with the government. Actually, a lot of it was the government's, you know, the Conservative government's own policies originally, which insisted on uh, clean air zones in different areas. Basically, air quality needs to be sorted out in cities. How do you do it? What works best locally? Never going to suit absolutely everybody, but for the majority, what sort of works? So you'll get different schemes in, in different areas. Um, but, then when a party campaigns nationally, as happens in this by-election, they're sort of campaigning locally, but at the same time, there's this national picture as well about, you know, is Labour ready to, to govern, uh, can Sunak pull it out of the bag and, and, you know, win the next uh, general election and so on, you then have this sort of clash of that local against against the national. But I think that's inevitable.
0: Yeah, 100%. And I, I think, like, I suppose what really does annoy me is, that, like, you're, you're right with what you say there, Stuart, like, we need we do need localized policies because obviously every city in the country is completely different and has their own set of challenges and own set of issues and stuff like that but i think like for me they have got to kind of let let the the strings go and and let kind of mayors and stuff like that really start setting their own agendas locally to to deliver for residents and so like you say you know not everything's going to be perfect not everything's going to be things people agree with but like at least they'll kind of know their areas a bit better than the national politicians, they'll know what, what's affecting residents and, and, and stuff like that so yeah, no I, I completely agree, it just, it annoys me sometimes that mayors get a bad rep really it, it doesn't matter kind of what political colour it just, yeah, it, it does kind of give me a bit of the ick really
1: It does, well I, look, and you know for you know, they're electing, or yeah, there's a by-election so Boris goes, putting a new MP in what can that MP do about the ULES? the square root of nothing it's not in their policy area. It's not in their powers to do anything. They can complain, they can moan, but they can't do anything about it. Actually, it's the next mayoral election. So when Mayor Sadiq is up for a re-election, uh, if I getting my years right, next year, next May, uh, that's the chance where the voters of you know Uxbridge and South Rice, the same as you know Barnet, where I am, Croydon, you know all the other parts of London get to have their say on who they want to lead the city in its you know, wider form and the policies that they will introduce so that's the time where they can really have an impact on whether the ULES in this instance happens or doesn't happen get a different vote for you know the city will vote for a different mayor if there's really this huge backlash against the ULES chances are they won't
0: yeah I suppose though it comes down doesn't it to the political understanding of, of that from residents and I think you know if you, if you don't have time and you've got a busy life and you just you're seeing something coming in, and there's an opportunity to vote on something which could potentially have a bit of a difference. You just kind of vote with that, and it seems like that's been the case here, really. Um, even though it was a very small majority, but but after the yeah, look, 500.
1: Let's let's say so that's that you know so so it's a majority of 500. So you know, 250 or 251 or whatever votes probably were affected by the EULEX. You know, they probably yeah. did think about a lot about it, and it was their main issue. Okay, so they may have voted Labour, so Labour may have got in. I'm not going to change the the ULES policy. No, 100%.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, shall we move on to Selby and Einstey? So, this was a Labour win, and I don't think it's been Labour for a very long time, if if ever, Stuart, I think. Um, I think think it is. That's
1: right, yeah, I'd have to go back in the history books and, and double check that. But again, you know, another non traditional Labour seat.
0: Yeah, so the, so they're knocking them off, aren't they, kinda of one by one. Um so just looking at the candidate, I th- I thought this was really interesting. So he's now the youngest MP in the House of Parliament. a uh, twenty five year old Kim Mather, so he, he was the candidate who won. He's an Oxford graduate, um and he's, I think he's been touted as the baby of the house now, so I think that's his new nickname for for the house. Um but I suppose like like you were just saying there, you know, it's never but we don't think it's ever been kind of Labour. So is this a bit of an indication of where the general election could be going then as, as we approach in a year's time or So,
1: Yeah, look, the fact that Labour turned over, turned a, I can't remember what it was now, 20-odd thousand, you know, majority, roughly, in an area where they don't traditionally win is huge. Yeah, I mean, this sort of shows, and we'll come on to the Somerton and Froome one in a second as well with the Lib Dems one, But those two, plus actually the Conservatives only just hanging on in an area where they don't traditionally lose in in Uxbridge, shows that the opposition parties, this isn't just about Labour but about the Lib Dems as well, are shifting votes in sufficient number that come the next general election, you know, it looks like a win Uh, for Labour whether the majority is huge or not. I think, you know, the the trouble is the numbers are so massive to get from where they were at the 2019 election to to even, you know, win the next election, whatever sort of size. It's a massive task. But if you're, you know, pushing along those sort of lines, then I think, you know, if you're the Lib Dems and Labour, you are happy. You think this is, you know, showing some momentum, going in the right direction. But for Labour, arguably, and I think I'm very much in this camp, the fact that you didn't quite win Uxbridge Actually, is no bad thing. No bad thing at all, because it means that you have to. As for, for Keir Starmer, he has to keep the pressure on. You know, it's a massive task, sort of unity, etc. So, you know, you know, it could have been three nil to the opposition type thing. It ends up being, you know, two one. It's still a win, uh, but I think it's almost a better win than three nil.
0: Yeah, so he's got to, He's got to continue ploughing on, really, hasn't he? And taking it serious. No, no time to kind of rest on his laurels, but. I, I suppose, Stuart. I just wanted to quickly look at some of the criticism Kate Mather's been getting for being so young as an MP. And I seen what what was the MP's name again, Stuart? Who was? I think it was Johnny
1: Mercer that said he was. Uh, I can't remember the phrase. You
0: remember, Ben? But, uh, an in-betweener, I think he. Yeah. So, so basically, yeah. This this Johnny Mercer, who's a Conservative MP, so I think he called him an betweener and I, I just think it's really unfair. And, and I suppose would. Put a lot of younger people off um, getting involved in politics, really, and I I think comments like that are so unhelpful. To be honest, like I think you know, the House of Parliament should be representative of kind of what the country looks like, and I think those views from all different age range, or different backgrounds, or different ethnic origins, all that kind of stuff, need to be kind of you know represented properly in in House of Parliament. And I think by by him kind of I suppose it's ageism in a way, isn't it? Like by him, you know criticizing him for being 25 I just think and I suppose it's criticizing the people who voted him in as well you know like those people elected him you know exactly kind of his age and all that kind of stuff before it I just think yeah not really on that to be fair um I don't know if you thought anything
1: yeah I know you're right I, I no I agree with you totally Ben I mean I think look Mercer is um you know an experienced conservative politician he's a minister is uh, you know veterans affairs he's one of those that's being touted as the a potential replacement for ben wallace at uh, the ministry of defense so you know secretary of state for defense uh i don't think he's done himself any favors but i think it's deeply insulting yeah i mean look the guy's 25 um what's the what's the cutoff point before you think you should be an mp obviously there are i mean you know i think he's 18 whatever, you know, to be elected etc but you know um, but what is it to be an MP, You should be thirty, thirty-five, forty. What, what you know? What to what to Mercer is the ideal? You know, uh, you know, entry point that proves you are. I don't know. You have a certain level of intellect or experience or um, you know life, you know, life chances, life experiences, or whatever. Where, where, where what is the cutoff? So I think it, it it deeply is disingenuous, and that frankly, yeah, then... You know, part of the reason why we talk through you know, some of these issues as we do is to sort of show that, you know, you don't have to be, you know, the, you, know you don't have to be you know, absolutely deep in the depths of politics. Actually, these things mean something to everybody and just talking them through and explaining them and, and chatting about them is a really good thing. Well, Mercer is almost sort of saying, no, 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 you, you know, you have to have, you know, have to be of a certain age to understand these things, which is utter nonsense, mm.
0: I think. I I mean, I heard him say, you know, what experience does he have in life and stuff like that. And I do sometimes think, too, what experience do, do a lot of MPs have? They come straight from, you know, Cambridge, Oxford, wherever, straight into Parliament, no job on the front line of, of doing anything like that. And they're just ousted in. So what, you know, what experience do they have of real life as well? And I think that's why it's important that there's a mix of people going into the House of Parliament because you need a mix of experiences it know. is
1: that yeah. mix it is absolutely that mix Ben because you know somebody like uh, Mercer who has served and you know it, I mean looks you know thank goodness people like him do stand up and, and you know serve the country in the armed forces I and mean, it's it's a you know, you know we owe so much over so many years so it's not denigrating his role his experience or anything on those sort of lines but equally just because somebody hasn't had lots of jobs, or hasn't worked in business, or hasn't worked, of, you know, well, in being active in a trade union or whatever it might be. He's had other sorts of experiences. He'll understand the education system and universities. Well, Oxford, maybe maybe not everybody's cup of uh, you know experience of, of university, but but he will under, he, he'll have a much closer affiliation to those sorts of issues and the sorts of issues that affect twenty five year olds finding you know um, mortgages and housing and you know first jobs and that you know those sorts of issues the mercer does so yeah. why is his experience any less relevant or any less directly relevant to politics and policy making than, you know i don't know somebody that's basically might be older but has never left politics come in post post special advisor you know special advisor type role work with you know in politics and around westminster gets a you know an mp seat in early 30s but Arguably, they never had a, uh, if anybody could see me, you know, speech marks and a special, you know, um, yeah, job or anything along that line, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I just, I don't understand it, frankly. I think it's deeply insulting.
0: Yeah, same. Sorry, I just wanted to raise that because uh, that really did rile me this week. So, uh, but moving on to Somerton and Frome, So, this was also a Conservative seat which the Liberal Democrats took, um, so I think Sarah Dyke is the lady who kind of took this one. Um, so I think this was a big win for the Liberal Democrats, I think the seat's been held by the Conservatives since 2015, and I think prior to that it has been a Liberal Democrat seat from 1997 to 2015, so it's been a bit of a, a flip-flap really from Liberal Democrat to Conservatives. Um, but nevertheless, like still a massive win for the Lib Dems and I suppose shows, you know, people are moving away from Conservatives, I suppose.
1: And back to, the, I mean, for the Lib Dems, I mean, if there's, it's not just the fact that people are sort of, you know, not prepared to vote for the Conservatives and, you know, Rishi Sunak and Approach and Post Boris and Tras except Brexit, et etc. Et but if they've gone to the Lib Dems, they're back to the Lib Dems. So in the South West, which was always a sort of a, you know, regional sort of, um you know, original Liberal, so Liberal Party sort of, uh, you know, area, uh, you know, and into the Liberal Democrats. The South West was always an area where the Lib Dems, you know, viewed as, as, a, as a heartland, as a, as a really important, you know, base for, for the number of seats which gave them, you know, good returns, uh, you know, in, in Parliament for general elections. So to, to, to actually turn this one around, to win down in the South West, uh, given what happened at the last general election, for them is massive and add that to the last couple of by-election wins they've had as well, which again have been, you know, deeply impressive. Um, for the for the Conservatives, it's uh, oh dear time, really. I think. Yeah. I mean, I know I know by-elections are always different, and you know the the emphasis on the candidates and and you know the national media turn up, and you get loads of uh, you know, ministers or shadow ministers turning up to the campaign. Ah, oh, you know, I get all of that. It's all different, and it doesn't quite hold up in exactly the same way. Come general election. But in people's minds, in the general electorate's minds now, it's sort of, actually, yeah, Labour can win. They nearly got that one. They did win that one. We're prepared to give them a go. The Lib Dems, okay, coalition, Brexit, coalition, for, uh, sorry, tuition fees we're moving on from that. Okay, maybe maybe we will give these other parties a bit of a chance. So it's it's more the sort of psychological, I think, you know, implications for the electorate as a whole, and this shift away from the current government, which is the important part, maybe more than individually, you know, the, the you know, each result.
0: Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So interesting times. But I'd say, perhaps apart from the Conservatives, winners all round. Really, there for all parties. So, so interesting times lie ahead. Um, I mean, just just now. We're going to shift our focus a bit to kind of the manifesto prepping for the next election. And I know um, Labour have kind of been doing a bit of this over the, the past weekend. So I think they held a policy forum in Nottingham um, just to start the process of drawing up the, the manifesto for government. So I think I'm right in saying this is a space where shadow cabinet go to it, Stuart, influential party members go to it, Labour support and trade unions attend to discuss policy and what the Shadow Cabinet are thinking in terms of policy announcements for the manifesto. Um, have you got any kind of like insight into some of the stuff that was discussed there, Stuart? Any, anything you want to talk about there?
1: Well, I think, I mean, for me, it was the sort of the, and coming only after a few days after the, uh, the by-elections. As I mentioned earlier, I think it's, it's more the fact that Starmer was able to go into that in a position which said, look, we've made great progress but it's not a done deal. We've got so much more to do. You've got to stick with me. We've got to keep united. And for me, so the, the commission uh, is it's sort of, the, it's the sort of next step in the policy making process. So they've had a number of, I think six different things, not quite directly related to the five missions of Starbucks, Anyway, I think six papers that have been consulted on over the last sort of year or so, maybe even a touch longer, they produce reports. The, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a democratic sausage machine, if you like. Uh, those papers go into the, the commission. The commission, you know, then has the discussion, which it had, you know, this weekend in, in Nottingham, sounds like the world's worst sort of, you know, weekend away in Centre Parks, or whatever, but anyway, it wasn't that Centre park, so. Um <laughs> And, uh, at, 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 you know, and the members and the trade unions sort of thrash these things out, uh, at, you know, and decide, not the manifesto, but, you know, again, some broad approach and broad themes. So, you know, it's interesting to look at Starmer's speech from the weekend. And it was, look, you know, that that sort of thing. You know, we've made great progress, comrades. He doesn't use the C word. Uh, you know, um, uh, but, but uh, you know, there's more to do. So I think that, for me, that was the really interesting part. They didn't fall out with each other. So if they'd had, you know, three massive wins, you could well imagine people going, well, actually, you know, we're not being radical enough on... You know, on the two child uh you know policy that that sort of you know he got some criticism for by keeping that cap in on on child benefit or on the environment, which you have already mentioned, Ben here. You know, you could imagine people going, no no no, we need to be more radical because we've shown we've got the country behind us. Actually, it was a two-one win to the opposition. Labour only won one, the Lib Dems has got the other one and the other one that the Tories retained. Therefore, it could fit into that narrative. And that seemed to be the approach that Starmer was taking this weekend and I say the main thing was they didn't fall out the fact they didn't fall out with each other shows that that narrative that that straight jacket which Starmer is putting on the party to just you know reassure the electorate the general electorate massively that this party can be trusted come the next election for me was the was the main takeaway from from the couple of days they had away
0: yeah i suppose i suppose that is really important because obviously the labor party in recent years has been really uh, you know separate really on on a lot of issues there's been like a lot of you know you you think of momentum and, and that group and stuff like that and what Corbyn was kind of doing before Starmer came in a lot of very left leaning policies Starmer's come in completely changed it really gone a lot more central but somehow he's managed to kind of keep the party together and it looks like it's continuing by the sounds of it um despite him getting some kind of criticism from Different areas, just on that two-child benefit cap and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and look, I mean,
1: Labour are, are more united now than for, for years. I mean, partly that's because, that frankly, they haven't won an election now for a very long time. So there's that. There's the reality of people having left the party because they don't like Starmer. They, you know, they were more pro Corbyn, etc. Then you have a number of people that have been chucked out of the party because of their views, you know, abhorrent views so that are not in the party anymore. Um, so, if you mix all those things together, that sort of gives him a bit of a platform. Now, that doesn't mean to say that he's not going to get criticised, and he has done and will consistently get criticised, you know, it wouldn't be a political party. Look, we have to just remember that, you know, it's particularly in this country, because we don't have a proportional representation system, the parties themselves are massive coalitions themselves of different views. And sometimes they're more united than other times, That's, that is the reality. At the moment, the, the Labour Party is pretty united, but you're always going to get some, dis, you know, discontent. You, you know, some people that will express views that aren't counter to, you know, or, or are counter to what the leadership wants. But that's politics. That's that's a that's a party. That's different views coming together, and and then those views get thrashed out, and you know, a consensus view is come to. That's how politics in this country works.
0: Hundred percent. Hundred percent. So I think just something to keep an eye on then really over the next year and I'm guessing pressure will grow on Labour um, as we get nearer to a general election as, and as support grows for them I suppose as well. Um, but yeah, one to keep an eye on. the one. What I wanted to move on to, Stuart, was uh, I suppose the retaliation from the Conservatives and, and what they've kind of done after the by-elections as well. And I know the kind of... So Michael Gove, the Secretary of State for Housing Communities and Leveling Up, he, he kind of set out his plan to build one million new homes this parliament. So that's that's quite an ambitious target if it's before the next general election. Is that... Is that Kind of what he means by by that. Well, nobody's
1: quite sure whether he means building, starting, completing. I mean, there, there's, you know, and it's always a little bit, you know, a bit Dr. Evil, isn't it? You know, from, uh, you know, Austin Powers. I'm going to build one million homes. And then you laugh manically. And, and then everybody looks around and go, well, that's that's no target at all, is it? You know, so, oh, it's a billion homes instead. And they go, oh, no, no, I can't possibly do that. So, it, you know, when, when people start banding numbers around like that, I think it's 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 frankly a sign that they don't really know what they're doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um. I mean, I can just give a quick summary of kind of the main premise of the plan, but it is quite similar, Stuart, to stuff we've heard before from this government and others, I suppose. Um, so I think the main premise of the plan is to build homes in the centre of cities, and I think the cities they were focusing on was obviously London, um, which, yeah, I mean, that's that's going to be one, isn't it? And Cambridge and Leeds as well, so they were the other two. And is there any reason they focused on them cities, Stuart, from what you've read or seen or anything?
1: I mean, I think certainly for Cambridge, I mean, Cambridge particularly is a, I, well, I mean, I live in London, I know less about Leeds, but you know, Cambridge is a particularly straight jacketed city where it's it's a lovely city, but it's got some, you know, quite closely, you know, tightly constrained by the green belt uh, around it, whereas at the same time, you know, Cambridge is a growing city, you know, tech and biotech and, and, and other. Um, you know, it's part of a a growth area along with Oxford and the Ark and all these sort of things, whatever name we want to use. So I think Cambridge is almost like a sort of a poster city for not being able to build enough because it's just so expensive to buy in in and around um, Cambridge and nobody's building any houses there because they frankly can't.
0: Yeah, but I, I mean, we'll come on to this in a minute, but I suppose it comes back to affordability then, doesn't it, of housing... Which I've not really seen any announcements kind of on, um, but yeah, I mean, just looking at some of the other key points of the plan. Sorry, so I, I think another key point of the plan is that it'll build on brownfield land. Um, so basically, that's land that's previously been developed on. So moving away from any idea of building on the green belt. So I think that's come because they've been getting a lot of backlash from uh, backseat Tory MPs on building on the green belt. So a lot of obviously a lot of these backseat uh, backbench. So Tory MPs are kind of from rural areas where the green belt's in jeopardy and stuff like that. So there's been a lot of pressure on them around that as well. Um, but I also saw that there are plans to kind of relax planning rules in England and look to transform empty shops, offices, etc. into flats and housing. So I think the argument for doing this is that homes will be near the infrastructure in the cities. It will create opportunities for economic growth, which is obviously really needed at the minute. As it's, I suppose as it's bringing more people into cities, um, and I suppose the other main reason is it's a cheaper solution than going out and building, you know, on on green and it is a bit less less hassle than kind of doing that, and you know they've got to they haven't got to get as many people on board to kind of do that, um, so yeah, so. I, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, on that, Stuart. I've got a couple that I can share. <laughs> well, look,
1: I tell you what, I'll go first, and you can do, yeah. You go, then go on. You, yeah. You, you jump in as well. Look, I mean, I think this is uh, a, 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 you know a massively foolish, um, well, not foolish. That's the, that's the wrong word. Look, it, you know, in and of itself, is it you know sensible? We should build on Brownfield. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, of course it is. That's why every other single government in my memory has always said we need to build. In the city centre, we need to develop brownfield sites rather than developing greenfield sites. We do brownfield sites now. Troubles: uh, it's expensive because very often, it's particularly in you know bigger cities. Maybe not so much Cambridge. I don't know so much about Cambridge, but. Um, they're often ex-industrial sites so there's a lot of cleaning up costs so the idea is oh look there's a bit of land there we can just knock down that old crappy building that's there and then we'll you know to no they might be listed there might be you know chemicals and all sorts of horribles under the you know the level of um you know the earth the idea that just because it's brownfield there won't be a level of opposition locally there may be loads of other people that already live in that they probably don't want that conversion. They're already worried about the traffic. Oh, what's that going to do to the air quality? Oh, we'll, we'll have a ULES instead. Oh no, we don't want that. So, you know, none of these things are straightforward. And, and look, when the you know coalition government under and, under Cameron, and you'll know about this from your time at the uh, local government association as well, but when they sort of said, look, you can um, you know convert uh, you know offices and things like that into uh, homes, flats, etc., etc. All that happened, I mean, particularly, I mean, I saw a lot of it in Westminster, I was working in Westminster in London at the time, is that all that happened was a load of, you know, offices were converted into very posh flats that nobody, a real person could ever afford. Um, And I think the other, you know, the other thing which strikes me as really weird is that you're saying we're going to convert shops into houses, but one of the other big campaigns has always been saving the high street. So are you saying now that all these high streets up and down the country, Rather than putting shops back into them and and sort of bringing, you know, shoppers and people having cups of coffee or whatever it happens to be into city centres and the high streets, actually, you're going to to convert them into um, uh, into into flats and houses instead. What does what does that do to the high streets? I I I I just get very confused.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I suppose the only thing I'd imagine they'd argue is that high streets are changing people don't shop how they used to but i have to say like they are going against a lot of very conservative ideas there of like what old britain used to look like and you know lovely green grocers down the high street and all that kind of stuff um so i mean i mean yeah no i completely agree with that i I think for me like it just seems like another short-term solution again which will lead to terrible housing conditions i mean to renovate uh, just looking at kind of the office examples and stuff like that to renovate an office and then to go and live there like for one it can't be a very big space it, it's you know it's not going to have all the kind of amenities that you need and all that kind of stuff i just I just think it's another sticking plaster and it. it feels like we've had a lot of them in politics lately sticking plaster solutions um, and not really getting to the main cause of the solution, which is affordable housing that that you know and i've not seen any mention of you know, how, how they're going to solve the problem of affordable housing, I've not seen any commitment of, you know, building more social or council housing anywhere. Um, it's just, yeah, another, for me, it's just another stick and plaster policy, really, and I, yeah, I don't think it'll work. But. It's obvious that, you know, from the by-elections,
1: you know, and the previous local elections, that, you know, the lack of housing is a problem for the government, they need to do something to try and solve it. So this is absolutely a reaction to the local elections, the last set of local elections, and then you know these by elections as well, but Ben, I think mean, you, you know again you 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 struck it right. Is that these aren't necessarily the types of even if it's successful. So even if we get numbers, and you know the reaction from across the housing, you know uh, you know builders and, and um, you know others is that you know this isn't going to make any significant difference whatsoever. But let's let's even suppose that it does, it's not going to deliver. You know, one and two bed starter homes and flats that you know younger people need to get onto the housing ladder to keep that going to give you know so they don't have to keep paying out massive amounts of rent. It does nothing to address the interest rate issues and the high mortgage rates, which again is another barrier for, for younger people getting onto the housing ladder or their ability to get a de- you know sizable enough deposit together to then get the you know the mortgage that they need. It doesn't do any of those things. Look, unfortunately enough, you know, we've got a, you know, um, we got onto the property ladder, you know, a long time ago. Still got a long time ago the mortgage, sadly, but you know, at least I have one, and I, you know, I, I do have a property. Um, uh, but you know, for my kids, I can't see them ever being able to afford, uh, you know, a house anywhere near us. Um, so which political party is going to solve that problem? And I think you're right. that, you know. People are talking. Labour are talking a lot about changes to planning. You know, it's one of their big, you know, supply side, if you like, reforms that they can do. But we haven't seen the detail. If this is what the Conservative plan is, then I think they will have a problem at the next election. It doesn't look radical enough. It doesn't look substantial enough. So, you know, it, it's 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 a reaction to those recent results, local and by election. Is it going to transform? Is it going to convince anybody? I think that's going to be their real problem.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, I mean, I might be reading it wrong here Stuart but it feels to me like it's a very desperate last throw of the dice before and before they kind of uh, you know go out of government really I don't know if you feel like that but it just feels like there is no forward plan they're not really offering anything for the next you know six years kind of thing Um, which you you know if they were expecting to kind of come back into government you'd be expecting to see a bit more of a detailed structured plan for how they deliver has and as it is going to I mean it is now one of the biggest issues but it's only going to get worse as well um, so I don't know for me it just feels a bit like not that they give up <laughs> but they the get into that stage if that makes sense to it
1: I think your instincts are right the, 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 Tory, the Tory party Sunak and others have a real problem they need to show that they're doing something in this last six months or year that they are definitely in power for because they call the general election or either because they have to, or they call it early, so they've got to show that they're doing something. So uh, announcements like this. But on the other side, you don't want to go too early with a really big announcement yeah. because you need something to put in the manifesto to then sort of you know do a, a you know a huge tada to then sort of you know be your big push, come the next election for really being. So they're in a sort of a sort of nether world of needing to do things, but not wanting to go too big because you want to sort of have some big reveal come nearer the time of the next general election in that sense a little bit similar to Labour you know you so we we are in a bit of a holding pattern just waiting for that election and whether that comes you know sort of March April to April May time next year post the budget you know is that when the the Tories say right you know we think we've got a good chance now we've had some tax cuts or we we're indicating tax cuts or you know some spending changes or whatever it is come that come that budget in March presumably March um, or do they hang on right until the bitter end end of next year beginning of you know 25 that's the big decision they have to make uh, and until that point we'll get small announcements like this which shows they're trying to do something but it's not going to be a big reveal
0: no so I, I suppose it's a wait and see and uh... Yeah, we'll see how the next few months go. Um, I think Stuart we'll we'll leave it there for today because we, we've gone a little bit over today. But um it's been great talking through those those kind of couple of announcements and the by-elections and stuff um, from for the past couple of weeks. So we'll be on again in the next few weeks um, and hopefully there'll be some more kind of news that's been drip- fed through. Um, but Stuart, always great talking to you and we'll speak again soon. Fantastic, good to see you, Ben. You too. Take care everyone. Bye everyone.